you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12 today, verses 8 through 12. Father, we're thankful for your word. We praise you that we have your grace, your goodness, your mercy in Christ Jesus. We're so thankful that you've you teach us and correct us. You warn us and rebuke us. You admonish us. And it's so often in our lives we find ourselves being clearly treated as children, as sons and daughters of the King. And I ask you, Lord, this morning that you would help us to understand, to know, to apply this truth in our lives. That we truly would let your word have its way in us, and that you would overcome our stubbornness and our blindness and grant us grace, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the text says this in Luke 12, beginning at verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be Denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now this morning we have a passage before us that kind of, it feels like, it seems like, anyways, it shifts gears. For the last two weeks we looked at the fear of God versus the fear of man and how it is that we walk in the fear of God. And this week in our text, it seems to completely be unrelated. I don't know about you, but it's like, how, how do we get here from fear of God, fear of man? And now we're talking about um, some serious warnings from Jesus about how we respond to what God's doing. What Jesus teaches here is that we need to be careful of our responses to the different situations that we find ourselves in because they come with some heavy consequences. And here's how they, they connect. We, as long as we go along in the fear of man, as we walk into this section and, under, and, and, and respond in an inappropriate way, we're going to find ourselves not heeding the warnings here and walking contrary to them. We walk in the fear of God, we'll find ourselves being able to respond correctly to the circumstances of life. So there's the connection. The fear of God, the fear of man will actually have some consequences and they, which flows out of them. And this is what flows out of it. And here are some of the consequences. And the first thing we have to see here is that Jesus warns against responding correctly or incorrectly to persecution. In verses 8 and 9, where he says, Oh, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge, also will acknowledge, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, that's a pretty harsh warning. Deny the Son, he'll deny you. And in the context of this passage, it can be understood that Jesus is preparing his disciples for something he knows is going to happen. He knows that it's going to become very difficult 
to acknowledge Jesus before men. He knows that these guys are going to be put on a place where the authorities are going to come against them and they're going to question whether or not they acknowledge him to be the Christ, the Messiah, or not. Who do you say that he is? Do you believe in him? And Jesus knows that many of them who he's speaking with will have to confess him in very difficult situations. Intense persecution in some cases. With the apostles, as we know, what happened to them? Almost all of them, except for John, were put to death because they acknowledged Jesus before men. And because of this, Jesus wants them to understand. He knows what's coming. He's preparing them. It's not some light thing. Like, yeah, it's not as if you can go before men and say, man, I'll just cross my fingers, put them behind my back and say, yeah, no, I don't know who that guy is. I don't know Jesus. I have no connection. I don't know. Do you believe he's Christ? No, no. But, oh, good thing I crossed my fingers because I didn't mean it. No, Jesus is saying, no, no. You, you, if you do not acknowledge me before, me before men, I will not acknowledge you in heaven. However, something else we have to understand here is that this isn't a one-time deal. Like, if you ever did this, you're done. And how do we know that? Can you, it wasn't that long after this that someone, one of the twelve, denies Jesus. Peter. Peter did not acknowledge Jesus before men. He was brought into the situation, and Peter trusted at that point, Peter was pretty self-confident. He expressed his self-confidence, didn't he? To Jesus. Oh, I would never, Jesus, I would never deny you. And Jesus sees Peter, and Peter has a, some more lessons to learn, and, and he's a really good example of what it's like when those trust in their flesh, those who think they have the strength, those who think, oh yeah, no problem, put me up before anybody and I'll be able to stand. He's like, no, you won't. You won't, Peter. But Peter had to learn that. Only, he learns that his strength, his power, his confidence is in the Lord. And we're going to see that because things change a little later on. When it comes to our life, we might not find ourselves in a high-stakes situation where we have to decide between Jesus and our lives. But we can often find ourselves in socially awkward situations where we find it very difficult to identify ourselves with Jesus. And especially in an environment where you're heavily involved in this, particularly the Northwest culture, you'll find yourselves often on the opposite side of the aisle, so to speak. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you're hanging around with a bunch of non-Christians and a subject came up that you weren't, that you knew right away that you stand in an opposite position? And you're the only one. And the group is there, and they're, they're talking in such a way as if they're believing and thinking that everybody in the group stands in the same place. But there you are, gulp, on the other side. Well, let's just say, for example, you're in a lunchroom, visiting away with about ten other co-workers, having a good old time. And in the midst of the conversation, someone says, just as you're about to take a bite of your sushi, that, um, can you believe there are people who actually think homosexuality is a sin? You know where this is going. 
can, can you believe this? Okay, and so they're talking away, and so now all of a sudden your face turns red because you feel like there's a sense in which you might be dragged into this conversation. You're trying to find the exit, the nearest exit, so you don't have to, it doesn't come up. And then as this happens, you feel a horrible tension in your stomach, and you feel the sense of awkwardness because someone could ask you, what do you th- so what do you think, Dean? <laughs> well, um, how about those mariners? <laughs> Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did he just say the mariners stink? <laughs> you know, can, can you guys relate? To, have you ever been in a situation where the pressure and, and everything is is diametrically opposed to you, and you know that whatever you say is completely contrary to what they think and believe, and you found yourself in a scenario or a situation where there's, there's tension in your stomach, there's, there's a you know, constriction in your throat, and your face is red because you know you're in a difficult situation. Whenever that happens, whenever you're there, you've got to realize something, that what you need is grace. And you need the power of the Spirit. If you at all are in, walking in the fear of man and not in the fear of God, you won't stand. You won't. You will be like Peter the first time. You won't be like Peter the second time. Peter the second time was brought before the councils, and man was that different. His boldness, his conviction, his ability to speak, even though his life was in danger, was just amazing. And why is that? Well, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter was also, a, Peter was a man at this point now, realizing that the, where the strength and the power lied, it did not lie in himself, but in God who gives all things. I'm telling you, in those situations, you know what you need to do? You know what we all need to learn to do? In those moments, pray. Lord Jesus, give me your strength. Lord Jesus, be with me now. Help my mouth. I'm telling you, if that's not your reflex, don't try to muster up strength. Don't try to get some self-confidence. Don't say, you know, I, okay, I, I've got to be strong here. No, you are weak, but the Lord is strong. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Rely on Him. Turn to Him. Look to Him. Because apart from Him, you will deny Jesus in these moments. Apart from him, you will fail. How many of you have ever seen somebody, a Christian, getting interviewed on TV and, and they're like, oh, no, I just, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach because I know who the interviewer is and I know where he stands and I know where he's going to take the conversation. And like, why did you walk into the den of lions? And the only way I'd ever walk into that is if I, had, I knew I had lots of people praying for me and I was incredibly prayed up and I, knew, and, and I was walking in the fear of God because you know the questions are coming. And how many of you have ever seen great faithful Christian men buckle? One guy has. <laughs> and I feel for them. And you can get all over them all you want. Have you ever watched them buckle and said, oh, I can't believe it, man. I was like, they, they, oh, how they answered that question. You know, and, and, and the great question today, and, I, and as I posed it already, is... 
So do you believe homosexuality is a sin? It's like the great, they know, that they, they, they love to watch the person squirm because have you watched a guy who's like, have you seen someone interviewed saying, yes. Uh, there might be one or two people who will do that. But most of them say, well, you know, and, and five minutes later, they're spinning all around trying to answer it. And, you know, I feel so bad for them. That is like they were put in the most difficult situation. And, and the, here's the thing is that we need to have compassion on people. And we need to pray for these people. And we need to understand that that is a very difficult situation. And apart from somebody who's actually set their minds on the things of the Spirit and is walking according to the Spirit and is prayed up and has people guarding and defending them, they are not going to be able to stand. You wouldn't stand either. So don't get down on people. Pray for people. And don't think that yourself. You will be tested at times. And this is going to happen in your life. It's going to happen in the, in the grocery store. It'll happen in the workplace. It'll happen at a restaurant. It'll happen. These things, in times and places happen where we're called upon to, to identify ourselves either, either with Jesus and what he stands for or with what the world stands for. And we'll find ourselves in a very difficult scenario, a situation. It's going to happen. It happens. And I'll tell you, if you walk in the flesh, you will fall and you will, you will deny the Lord. But if you walk in the Spirit, because you set your mind on the Spirit, and you depend upon the Spirit, and, the, and, and you look to Him, and you live in the Spirit, you will walk in the fear of God, and you will stand up. And you, it'll even shock you sometimes, your boldness. And you know it isn't you. The Lord is with you. So this is what Jesus says. He says, be careful how you respond when you're challenged, when persecution comes. And He's warning, warning us. But then also realize that Jesus is gracious and kind. If we failed, it's not like one strike, you're out. Peter's a great example. God is gracious. He forgives. And then you, know, you need to know how to repent. You need to know what it is you need to do so that it doesn't happen again. The next thing Jesus points out to us in this text is in verse 10, where he teaches us how important it is to respond correctly to the work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 10 he says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, obviously this, this here is a very difficult uh, passage. This here is one that's caused a lot of consternation and for many Christians. But Jesus here wants to affirm that we, if we ever do sin against him, by speaking against him. And here's also evidence for the first point. If we, even denying him, there's still forgiveness, there's an opportunity for repentance. Because if he says, if anyone speaks a word against the Son of Man, he'll be forgiven. There's forgiveness there. But you, Jesus' love and passion and desire for the Spirit, you could see the love between them. He says, don't ever, ever blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's basically saying, you can say whatever you want to me. Go ahead. I don't care. And I'll forgive you. But don't, don't ever say anything against the Spirit or I will go crazy. And what that is, is jealous, passionate love. The triune love. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All of them are like the same. If you were to ask the Spirit, the Spirit would say, you could say whatever you want to me. 
It's not like I'm a, a sensitive. Um, no, that's not the point. But the Spirit and the Father, when even when you speak against the Son, do you, do you want to see wrath? Do you want to see anger? Do you want to see a passionate love for his name? Then do that. What you're seeing here is Jesus' love and the Father's love for the Spirit. It's like, you can say whatever you want to me, but do not ever say a word to my spouse against my spouse. It's that kind of jealous, passionate love to guard and protect. And I think it's important for us to see this and understand this. It's not just some theological concept here. This is actually a loving relationship where one's love for the other is supremely jealous. That's why we talk about the wrath of God. Some people think of the wrath of God as some like monotheistic God who's just angry if you would ever do anything against him. No, the reason why there's wrath is because the Father, Son, and the Spirit, there's tremendous wrath. When the Father is dishonored and not glorified, the Son and the Spirit are enraged. And likewise for each other member of the, the Trinity. There's this loving relationship. That, and because you love something, when you love something and someone trashes the thing you love, what happens to you? You get a little angry? What, what if someone maligns and abuses your children? Would you just sit there and think that was okay? No. If you don't freak out, if you don't get angry, if you don't have wrath, you have no love. It's the manifestation of love. Anger manifests. Wrath is a manifestation of the thing you love. You get angry because the thing you love has been hurt or damaged or destroyed in some way. And that, that ought to make you angry because that is actually the expressed image of God coming out. Now, here's the question. Here's the issue here with this particular text that I think a lot of us have maybe thought about or struggled with, or at some point, I know a lot of Christians have, because there's some who believe that Jesus is talking about speaking, um, speaking against a work of God being done, no matter how questionable, and so they're always, they don't ever want to say anything against anything that's being done in the name of God, just in case it was you're speaking against the word of God. There are others who believe that Jesus is referring to some, something very specific, clear, and undoubtedly the work of God. Don't speak against God doing a work that's undoubtedly the work of God. And then there are those who, who believe that if they've sinned against God high-handedly, knowing it was wrong, but they did it anyway, that that was an unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. There's people who like, have used this, like, I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin. Why? And they talk about the sins that they've committed, and they were high-handed, thinking it's the same thing here. But I think we need to understand, what does it mean? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And first of all, what this means, blasphemy, is we have to understand how it relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. And once we've done that, we can make a safe application to this reality. So, so I'll start by defining the word. And then connecting that to how it relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we'll see how we apply it. So what is blasphemy? Well, guess where it comes from? It comes from the Greek word, blasphemeo. It's where, it's be, we get the word blasphemy from the Greek word. So it's just a transliteration. It's not like there's some other English word. It's where we get it from. Now, according to Strong's Greek lexicon, the word means to speak evil against or use abusive or scurrilous language about God or men. 
The NAS exhaustive concordance defines it this way, to slander, hence to speak lightly or profanely of sacred things. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines it this way, to speak reproachfully, rail at, revile, or, or calumni- uh, calumniate. And I looked that word up because uh, I had no idea what calumniate. Who would write that word? I've never heard of it in my life. It's, it's basically just heaping words on. It's the same thing as like reviling or railing at. It's the same kind of calumniate. Wow. In, in Judaism, it was understood, blasphemy was understood as an act of cursing or reviling God. Even, in fact, using, it's not just that, it, it, it's less than that. Because they also said it's using God's name, his full name, Yahweh, just using it. That's why they would never, that's why they called him Jehovah. Or they, they call him by another name because Jehovah is like the, the, the vowels from Lord and the consonants from Yahweh together. And you get Jehovah. So they would never say Yahweh because they thought in saying it, they, would, they could perhaps blaspheme his name. So they would never want to do that. And so out of their sense of holiness, self-righteousness, they would never dare say his name. Because they consider, if they heard someone say, if, you heard, if they heard you say Yahweh, they would... They would shudder. They would think that you committed blasphemy. One thing we have to understand in all these definitions is that blasphemy is when we take God's name or something he has done and we profane it in some way. So we can do that. We can by, and, and here's the thing about verbally. About verbally. Here's the thing about blasphemy. It's verbal. It's it's a thing we say against. It's like you're speaking against or reviling against something God has said or done, and you're st- or not just even speaking reviling. Another degree of it is making fun, even making light of it, the sacred and the holy. A good example of what this means in relationship to the Holy Spirit is what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12, he gives more of a context as to what's going on when Jesus actually said these words, and you can clearly understand it, at least a lot better. Here's how it reads, Matthew 12, beginning at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul. The prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if by the Spirit of God that but if, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then da- jump down to verse 31. He says this: Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the, the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So do you see what he's saying here in in context? It was clear, it was obvious that here's a work of God being performed. A man was blind and mute, and he casts a demon out of him, and and he can speak, and and he can see. Now, 
it's obvious to everyone else around them what's going on. Here's the power of God. And then the Pharisees were just taking and declaring what the Spirit had done, and he's saying it's of the devil. He says, that is a blasphemy. You're blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees were committing what Jesus was talking to here by declaring verbally, blaspheming a work, an obvious work of the Spirit. It was clearly being manifested. In fact, we see this in John 9, where a common man... Here's a, now I'm going to read an extensive passage in John 9, because here's something interesting. A common man, untrained, not like a Pharisee, has no education. Here this man actually can see what God is doing, see that it's the work of the Spirit. And what does he do? He identifies this. He basically says, how could you not tell? And listen, then the response of the Pharisees. So here, let me listen to John chapter 9, beginning at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, this is why they're ticked off. It's a Sabbath day. And how dare you ever do this work, work of healing somebody on a Sabbath day, right? So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. And the reason they said this is because he healed this man on the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we know not, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents says, He's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, referring to Jesus. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, You're his disciple, but we're the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God, listen to what he's saying. We know, we all, it's basically common knowledge, we all know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
he's, he's educating the scholars. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Because that was pretty, you got to understand, he's just a common man here talking to the elite of the day. The doctors and the scholars and the theologians and the scribes. These are the guys who are like upper shelf, right? And he's given a little, he's informing them a little bit. Because he knows that, that Jesus, what he did, he did in the name of God. By the power of the Spirit. So when he would heal people, a lot of times he made it matter. He didn't have to, but he makes it manifest that this was in the name of the Father that he does this stuff. And that's why he says. He saw Jesus praying for the man, obviously, or praying for his eyes or however it worked out, because he says, God listens to him. And if he were a sinner, God wouldn't listen to him. Plain and simple. God doesn't listen to sinners. And not only that, no one has ever, ever, ever since the history of time. He says, I, I, I kind of heard Bible stories. I know my Bible somewhat, I think. I've never heard of this before. Someone born blind being given sight. Now that is off the charts. That is only something God himself could do. Clearly, this man knows and understands that nobody can do what Jesus has done apart from the Spirit of God. And you know what? And Jesus is saying to him, that's why he brings this up about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They, he knows that they are seeing the same thing. The works that I do, I'm doing before you. And if you can't see them and understand, you're not seeing and understanding. So when we, when, in Luke 12 now, when he says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, he's not talking about something accidental. Oh, like, oops, sorry, I didn't know. It was really confusing. I didn't understand, and I, I said it wasn't the work of God, and it truly was. No, this is like clear and obvious. God did a work that only God can do, and then you called that work of the devil. You blasphemed the work of God, and you, it was clear and obvious. You know, this is, this is not sinning in a way where you you know was wrong either. It's not, has nothing to do with a person sinning. Like, you know, God's word and God's law says, thou shalt honor your mother and father. And then you know that. And then you go and dishonor your mother and father. And then somehow somebody thinks, well, because I sinned in such a high-handed way, I knew I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to, but I did it anyway. I mean, if that was the case, most of us would have committed a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the reason I bring this up is because there are several Christians who feel like Maybe they've committed it, the unpardonable sin. Because they, they said something one day or they did something one day that was, they know was questionable, and, or not even questionable, they, know it was, they knew it was wrong and they did it anyway. It's not the same thing. This is a clear, direct blasphemy speaking against what is actually being done by God and, and by the power of the Spirit, and you're calling it as if it's of the devil. Here's something else I think we need to think about. I think that a fear of blaspheming the Holy Spirit has caused many Christians to hold back judgment in areas where they ought to judge. We're told to test the Spirit, to see whether of, of God or not. We're, we're told to, to, to be judges. We're to judge within the house of God. We're to say, we're to call things sin and, and things not to be called sin. It's not, it's not like we have to be afraid because we don't clearly understand. Yet a lot of people, have you noticed, will use the trump card. 
Like as soon as someone says God told me or you know, uses language like that or saying this is of God and they're, they're claiming that a work is of God, it's almost at that point we feel like there's a sense in which we shouldn't say anything against it because we could maybe possibly blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Well, this isn't what Jesus is warning against. Because one thing we have to understand, that it's clear and obvious, when the work of God is clear and obvious, it's the work of God, it's the only kind of work that God himself can do. Like, it's the kind of stuff when blind men receive sight, nobody can do that but God. When dead people raise from the dead and come alive again, nobody can do that but God. When people who are lame rise up and walk, that's the work of God. And this is the kind of stuff that Jesus was going around doing. Casting out demons, healing the blind, all these things that, like, there's no one who who could do that but God. It's clear and obvious, and that's what he's saying. It's, it's clear and obvious. It's obvious to everyone, and for you to call that not of God, to call it of the devil, is to have be completely and obviously blaspheming the very work of God. So we have to realize that we don't have to fear bringing judgment on something. Or like, for example, there's people who will say, and it's a little bit of a trump card. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation. God told me. And if it's contrary to the teachings of Scripture, it's not wrong for you to say, I don't think God told you. I think the devil told you. <laughs> it's like, that, has not, that is contrary to the wisdom and the teaching of Scripture. And so you don't have to worry about blaspheming the Spirit because you, he said it was God who said, and then you said, no, it wasn't. Uh, especially in, in areas that are, that are more obvious. Like when somebody, there are actually people, I know this is extreme and I'm only using it because it's an easy one, said, you know, God told me that I should divorce my spouse. Have you guys heard that? I, I've, I've heard that before. And they'll, people will say things like that. And it's, um, it's our duty at that point, I think, to say, no, I don't think God told you. I think the devil told you. It's not of God. Don't worry. That's not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The God is not... So when people use this sometimes as a trump card, it's, we have to be a little more less reserved because sometimes I think we fear of doing this, and in fear of doing this, we, we pull way back and don't want to say anything. Another example is like, there's been, especially... And here's, here's where you'll really get into it, get into a lot of this obscure stuff. There's the charismatic movement that is often claimed God, God to be behind it, and we've withheld a lot of times in judgment of it because we're afraid to call in case it is of God, right? So, for example, Benny Hinn is going around waving his jacket and doing crazy things. People fall to the ground, and they start convulsing and barking like dogs and doing all kinds of weird stuff, and we're like, well, maybe that is the work of God. Well, no, um, because it's like it's, it's clearly and obvious. Like when you're acting like um, a demon-possessed person, or you're acting like an absolute drunk or a maniac or a person out of control, we don't call the, oh, that's what God does. That's the work of God. No, because if you look at, what's the fruit of the Spirit? If you see the fruit of the Spirit and somebody's manifesting God, if a human is manifesting God, what comes out? Like, what's the manifestation? A clear and obvious, this is God. What could we say with all confidence? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. With unequivocally, that's a manifestation of God, right? When I see total non, 
control, out of control, crazy, barking, squealing, rolling around, doing backflips. I hold my Bible. No, no, that's not of God. Now, now here's the confusing part. There could be parts in there that are of God, out of, of God. Like, let's just say that's going on and someone gets prayed for and they, you know, they only had one leg and now they have two. That's of God. That's not. Why can't we discern within the, within the meeting itself saying that's of God, that's not? It's sometimes I think we, we feel like we have to, like if we say it's not of God, every aspect and every little point's not of God. That's not true. That's not what we, we don't say that because there can be things. God has used, even Paul talks about, many were healing people in the name of Jesus and, and they weren't even following us. They said they were like people off on the fringes doing these things. Well, Jesus, there's actually people prophesying and doing miracles, Jesus says, who at the end of the age are evildoers that he's not even going to know. He says, away from you, evildoers, I never knew you. Well, did we not cast out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name? Yeah, you did. So I think we have to realize when it comes to discerning the work of God and the work of the Spirit, we have to be free and able to say, that's of God, that's not, in the same situation. And even in my, in my own life, you could rebuke me and say, Dean, what you said there is not from God. But, you know, most everything else you said is from God. So, so in judgment, judgment has to be discerning. So even in a, the whole Benny Hinn conference, there could be aspects, you say, yes, of God, no, absolutely not. And we need to be a lot more freer and bolder to declare these things. Because if you're concerned and worried about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and you want to do things according to the Word of God and follow Jesus, you don't have to worry about blaspheming the Spirit of God. These, and I hope we get that. I hope we understand that. That responding to the work of the Spirit and being able to discern it and respond appropriately and name it appropriately is not mysterious and hard to figure out. This is why we're to discern the spirits, as Paul and John both say. Discern. Discern even the prophets who speak. Discern them. Judge them. Is this line up? Is this with God, with what God is saying, or not? No, obviously, it doesn't give you freedom to go around and be a jerk. That's not it. But uh, it, because even in us, in declaring it, we have to manifest the grace and goodness and kindness of God in doing so. Now, just quickly, lastly, I'm going to um, say this about this other response that we should have. Um, Jesus, in verses 12, 11 through 12, tells us how we're to respond when brought into unknown situations. He said that when, we are, that when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about what you should say to defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, Jesus brings this up because, one, he knows his disciples are going to be brought into these situations. And two, they're probably going to worry about what they should say. That's, that's usually what we do. It isn't uncommon for us to worry and stress about unknown situations where we're going to have to be, stand up and speak. But he wants to assure us that we don't have to worry about it. It's already taken care of. And this, indeed, is what we saw in the disciples and how, and how they acted in Acts when they were brought before the council. Joel read for us this morning in, in Acts a particular situation where they were 
brought before the authorities and how they responded. And so in Acts chapter 4, the rulers got Peter and John and the other apostles. They brought them and they arrested them because of what they were doing, because they were speaking in Jesus' name. They told them not to do this. Do not speak in his name. And now, here's the thing. (laughs) This is how Peter responds to them. And this wasn't rehearsed. Jesus, uh, Peter wasn't the night before when he was thrown in jail. I had to wait till the next day. He wasn't there. Oh, no. Okay, if they say this, I say that. If they, if they talk to me, if they say anything about um, Jesus and his healing of this particular situation, how am I going to respond? He wasn't, they weren't doing any of that. I guarantee you the night before, they were probably in prison praying and singing psalms and hymns and encouraging one another, and spending time with the Lord. Because look at what happens. How can we tell that? He who sets his mind on the things of the Spirit is filled with the Spirit. And it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man standing before you is well. This, Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow, now there's a different Peter, right? Woo! Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, it says. Now, this is what it goes on to say, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men. But they answered in this a way, this says they were astonished. It says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So, so Peter and John would have spent the night, <laughs> and you could tell, what their thoughts, not about what they're going to say, but their thoughts on God, trusting him, looking to him, singing to him, praising him, thanking him, and God gives them the words to say, just as Jesus promised. And and here's the thing. We know this is a common response by the apostles. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas do the same thing. They're, They're captured, put in prison. And what does it say? Chapter 16, verses 25 through 26. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone who had bonds on were unfastened, and they went free. So what did they do when they were thrown into prison and waiting the council the next day to come before people, to come before these authorities, to come before the chief people of their, of their day? Were they preparing their speech? No, they were praying and singing and turning to God, looking to him, trusting him, And then when they do speak, they say some of the most amazing things ever. But how often do we worry about what we're going to say in tough situations? How often do we prepare? Here I am to testify to you, boldly to you today, that I have done both. I have both sweated and worried and been petrified and tried to analyze every single scenario and every single response. And I've also trusted God and looked to him, prayed to him, and found his grace to be sufficient. I've been in several intense meetings that are called a few days in advance, and you know that stuff's going to hit the fan, and it's going to get ugly, and it's a really gnarly meeting. I've been in a few of those, 
and I've done both. And let me here to testify to you that if you want to spend all your time worrying, stressing, not sleeping, and figure out everything they're going to say and every counter word, let me just tell you what's going to happen. You ready? It's not going to work out. It'll go really bad for you. And, God, and thankfully, God will make sure it goes bad for you. Because all you did was depend and trust on yourself and look to yourself and try to craft the whole situation. And you found yourself to be a babbling fool. And, and you couldn't say things right. And you didn't, couldn't remember exactly how you wanted to word them. And, and it's all confusion. On the other hand, I'm here to testify that as I sought the Lord, looked to Him, cried to Him, trusted in Him, miracles happened. I couldn't believe what was coming out of my mouth. I clearly knew at some point, it's like, this isn't even, these aren't even my words. Where did that come from? It's like I'm saying it in my head, and I'm almost observing myself saying it, and it's like a miracle at how well it's going. And that's exactly how it works. You know, it sounds almost counterintuitive. But don't hear me in saying this. Oh, that means you don't prepare for anything. Oh, you just walk into whatever. I tried that one, too. Oh, I see how this works. Preaching, I've got, preaching is wonderful because it's a kind of activity that you have to, you're, you're wise to prepare for. Because there's been times, and I've done this for a lot of years, that you, you, know, you don't prepare thinking, well, well, maybe I'm not going to prepare and I'm just going to see, let God speak through me. It's as if my tongue just gets turned upside down and my head's all scrambled and I get up here and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it feels like and I can't get anywhere. I'm like, what's going on? It's like I thought I would just like let God speak through me. I, I knew generally what I wanted to say, or, but I was going to let God just move in me. And, and I've had times where I've had no time to prepare. The week was just 90 miles an hour, maxed out. I'm, I'm pulling my hair out. It's Saturday, Saturday, and I have nothing. And all I have is desperate prayers to God. I take my Bible, I fall on the floor, and, oh, God, have mercy, please help me in every way. And I'm desperately crying out to him. And, and I, get some, I get together what I can get together, and I come, and the Lord is with me in the most unbelievable way. And I, I'm telling you, people in this room have come up to me afterwards and say, that was, that was really impactful, that really um, moved me. You, you must have really spent some time preparing for that. Yeah. Uh, Lots. <laughs> it, it's just unreal. So they, oh, I, you know, you can get the wrong lesson from that and think that somehow now what that means is that you don't prepare. Uh-uh. What it means is if you're doing something that is in your control to prepare, that you're supposed to prepare and that you have duties to do and perform, perform them to the best of your abilities. If you have 16 hours, if I have 16 hours to prepare a sermon, I better use it to prepare my heart, to prepare my mind, to prepare the message, prepare before God. If you've got two hours, use two hours. If you're using your time before God and preparing in ways that he's called you to prepare and, and work in ways he's called you to work, it, there's a blessing in it. But if you're presumptuous, or if you just think, oh yeah, this, this means that you don't, God will just give it to you, whatever you need, whatever, I don't even have to work at it. Well, go try that one and watch how badly you fail. It won't work so well for you. This is what Jesus was saying. When you come before authorities, you're going into a scenario, a situation that is completely unknown. 
There's variables that you don't even understand. This is high stakes, high variables. You cannot prepare for it. Don't bother. The Spirit will be with you. Spend your time. This is how you prepare for it. Don't prepare your words, but prepare your heart and your mind to trust the Lord, to seek the Lord, to depend on the Lord, and he will show up. So in closing, I just want to say this. I want us to understand and realize that the way we respond to the work of God, the way we respond to God in certain situations is vital and important. And there's no way you or I are going to respond in the appropriate way, whether it's whether we're in a situation, intense situation, where we're called upon to either profess the Lord or deny him, whether we're, we're declaring whether something's of the Spirit or not, or whether we're brought before authorities. In all these scenarios and situations, you know what's necessary? It's for you to walk in the Spirit. And that will never happen unless you have the habit of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. And this comes back to what I've said the last two weeks. There's no fear of God before your eyes. You will not walk in the fear of God. You will not walk in the power of God if you're not setting your mind on the things of God. And this has to become a daily and continual habit. Setting your mind on things above. Setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. And as you set your mind and heart there, guess what? You will walk according to the Spirit. And you will respond correctly in these moments. Amen. Father, we're thankful and grateful for you have given us your word and we ask your rich blessing on it. Work mightily in our hearts now, we pray in Jesus. Amen.